Welcome, it's Jeremy Allen Gould. I'm coming to you today to confirm between God and of man that in fact the rumors that you have all heard are definitely true. I started this podcast because I freaking love music. I was privileged enough to book amazing artists and bands in the past, and I was lucky enough to stay in touch with many of them to this day. This is a place to hear their stories. Thank you so much for riding along on this journey, and I hope you enjoy what you hear. With that said, the rumors are definitely true. Hey, it's Jeremy Allen Gould, and on this latest episode, we welcome Zach Gehring from the band May. Uh, You also know Zach from Unsung Zeros, as well as Demons, his current project. Um, In this episode, it was really cool to talk to Zach and reconnect and be able to talk about uh, the records The Everglow, as well as Singularity, of the self-titled May record, as well as the EPs, the morning, afternoon, and evening EPs that they put out as well as his uh, time in Unsung Zeros uh, on Eulogy Recordings. We also touch on his latest uh, band, Demons, and his time on Spartan Records. And uh, it was just a really cool conversation. I'm really stoked on it, and I hope you really enjoy this latest episode with Zach Gehring. Hey, Zach. How's it going, buddy? How are you doing, man? I'm doing all right. Just hanging in there. I like everyone, I suppose. Yes, yes, yes. What have you been up to lately? Um, well, I had a nice break over the holidays, um, and then I'm just in school right now. I came back this semester. I'm trying to get my PhD at GMU um, in the Cultural Studies program. Uh, so I'm, I just started my second semester. So I had kind of a delayed, um, you know, delayed entry uh, for my master's. Um, took a few years and. Decided to give it a shot, and so I'm here in Fairfax now, um, taking a break from reading to hang out. That's awesome. What uh, what do you plan to, or what do you want to do with this degree uh, eventually? I don't know. I mean, the the I guess teaching would be cool um, at, at, at the higher level of education. Uh, we'll see. I mean, I'll I'll take. I, I, I sound negative. I just like everything you hear about academia is just kind of, um, kind of doom, doom oriented in terms of uh, the profession and, and the job market. Um, so I just hope to get a job teaching at a university after I, uh, after I hopefully get my PhD. Um, and, and you know, I can I'll look at alt academic jobs as well, um, anything really. But you know, I'm, I'm kind of looking at hopefully studying things within the music scene that I've been a part of for a long time. Um, so I kind of have a subjective attachment as well to what I'm doing, and hopefully it plays out in a way that kind of keeps me in that world, um, even after I stop playing music, hopefully. I don't know. That is super cool. That's very, very cool. Sweet. So uh, real quick, just want to go back to when you and I originally met. Um, I like we, had, I, we were talking I uh, feel like I met you guys in Wichita, Kansas at WSU. I believe it was with Yellow Card. I think it was the tour. 
Um, and I think you mentioned it was a college type tour. Um, got a friend of mine, Dakota, he was a DJ there and I went on the bus and I know you don't remember, remember that, but I remember it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I definitely, that was the first time I met you. Um, and I think we've kind of talked online over the years, um, you know, social media wise and yeah, I feel um, like some mutual friends, um, thing that would pop up on like our respective Facebook pages, um, so, you know, from the start, you know, I don't remember that yellow card situation, but in all honesty, I don't remember a lot from that tour just because it was pretty long ago or just, you know, fairly long ago. Yeah. Um, but I do remember having indirect and direct communication with you uh, just through comments or kind of social media exchanges. Um, I mean, seem to gravitate towards uh, similar topics, at least for, for a certain while. Um, so, yeah, definitely remember, you know, these engagements over the years. Yes, yes. And then uh, the last time your current band, Demons, came through Jacksonville, played Jackrabbits. We got to hang out. That was really cool. Go to the yeah, brewery. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, that was awesome. It was a really cool show. Lo- I love that venue. That venue's incredible. Yeah, it's been I'm, – I'm glad it's still there. I mean, that's that really the – I think I've played a few other places in Jacksonville. What's that? Is there something like – Freebird Cafe or something? It was. It's no longer there. Okay. I don't care yeah. about that one. No offense to anyone who does like that one. <laughs> but Jack Rabbits, uh, I have fond memories of. Absolutely. We played with Mock Orange on that show, which is also super cool. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I saw uh, Jimmy Eat World Clarity Tour there back in the day. That's amazing. I saw that tour at the Social in Orlando. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess it was – my might have been Sapphire Sepulchre at the time. I can't remember. Yep. Yep. But uh, – that would be an amazing spot to see Jimmy World. Uh, yeah, geez. it was it was legit. Yeah, <laughs> with, no, with no knife to boot. So. Oh man, that's I incredible. Know. I know. Sweet. So Zach, tell me, um, kind of how you got into music and growing up for you. What was that like musically, and kind of what got you on this uh, path that you're on? Um, I started kind of caring about music intentionally, uh, probably around tenth grade or so. I. Uh, you know, in middle school, I was, you know, you're just kind of trying to figure a lot of things out. And I guess I still am trying to figure things out. But, you know, it's more of an intense process when you're young, going through adolescence. Um, and I remember loving Portal Jam a whole lot. Uh, and that kind of introduced me to the world. And you know, that was in middle school. I didn't really start paying more attention um, socially. By that, I mean, you know, my, my social circles kind of started to revolve around music around 10th or 11th grade. And I want to say 10th. Um, just a small kind of, it's small, but it was, I feel like it was pretty rich kind of, uh, punk rock alternative music scene in my small hometown, Mount Dora, Florida, which is like just a little North of Orlando. Um, there's a record store there, uh, called Maxwell Records. They had shows and I just decided to put a band together. Um, I don't know why, uh, I thought I could do it. And I think that's kind of the beauty of the whole scene in general. It's like you kind of have this low bar of entry. Um, and it just went off from there. So I I started my own band, and that band was called um, – I had one band called Euphoria, and that was before, you know, Unsung Zeers is when I started touring more. I'm sure we'll talk about that in a second. But Euphoria was this first band I had. And um, – you know, we'd cover Weezer and Tool and Nirvana. Um, you know, oh. the, a story that you know is probably the same story told in various forms across the country at that era of yeah. kids' age. You know, um, but, but yeah, it just kept going from there, and um, you know, 
we just didn't stop playing. And then eventually the band became on Sing's Ears. And then from there, we kind of just kept going and going and going. Um, yeah, so it was, and it was great. Uh, you know, all those formative kind of memories and core memories um, associated with playing, you know, small local shows um, and discovering punk rock um, and hardcore and all that stuff, uh, rites of passage, so to speak. Yeah, what uh, what's what are some of those records um, at that time that really shaped who you are? Um, like just uh, I, obviously you mentioned Pearl Jam and Nirvana and stuff, but is there any and, and I guess what what are some of the ones that you just look back and you just uh, they're just go tos? Um, you know, for me, uh, again, like I was big Fat Records fan, um, Epitaph, those compilations that came through in late '90s and early 2000s. I remember being a big Lagwagon fan, big MXPX fan. I think in a kind of transformative sense, I mean, those bands all played their role, but, you know, a band like No Effects, obviously. Um, Blink-182 and Dude Ranch hit. Um, that was pretty insane uh, for me. And, you know, as a white suburban kid, you know, so my pressures or stressors were of a particular type and maybe they could be considered more inconveniences relatively speaking but when you're young and you care about certain things blink 22 spoke to you know my demographic pretty directly um propagandi uh, propagandi however you want to say it, that band um i've been on a podcast uh called unscripted moments um that focuses on that band specifically um and talked about how that band continues uh to be a real or make a real impact on my life and that does you know when i heard uh Nation States, the song on, uh, on a Fat Records comp. So propaganda, propaganda, we're gonna say. Um, and of course, you know, I came up in the church too. So MXPX, um, I remember really, really digging Craig's brother. Um, and, and those are the kind of names that come, that come to mind. Um, Descendants, you know, Black Flag. I just want to say that, you know, and I don't mean to shortcut the answer, but just like you're, if you ask this question to anyone else, I think my answer is pretty generally in that realm. Yeah. You know, you're kind of reading, oh, minor threat, oh, bad religion, like these big names, or now they're big names. At the time, you know, they're a little more visible. Um, and you just kind of go there, and then that kind of sets you on your way. So those yeah. bands, you know, for me, you know, still kind of hold down. Absolutely. Great records, great bands. Um, so I guess that's probably what led to Unsung Zeros. Is that correct? Um, it's kind of that the pathway, I guess, with all that that musical influence. Oh yeah, I mean, um, all that. Yeah, exactly. You know, so I think band. You know, yeah, something like you just started kind of hearing what they were doing, and you know, you don't understand that what they're doing the, the, the songwriting process is is one thing but you think you can do it just because you know the chords and so you start to try to do it and you know first it was me singing and me writing um the songs in that band and then i i got a couple of buddies with me uh jerry josh and, and jason three j's um and when they and when they joined um you know they were kind of more well versed in that kind of stuff and that's when the band kind of took a more intentional direction um but it was like that kind of fast melodic you know yeah. uh fat record style punk rock um and within that you know you start hearing about other bands that are maybe a little different maybe branch out a little bit more in terms of sonic qualities and characteristics um 
yeah, I don't know. It's just one of those things where I think for me, um, it wasn't necessarily about hardcore or anything niche in that sense. It was just about punk rock. Um, and, you know, you, you see a band like MXPX who are probably our age. Um, I know, you know, like at, in their time, you know, they just kind of, they started doing it. And it's like, oh, okay, well, let's do it too. Um, so, you know, it's funny thing about influences, uh, Sonic, Sonic influences are one thing, but also just the trajectory you put yourself on mirrors um, bands that are just years ahead of you, not not too much ahead of you. You know, bands like Newfound Glory for us, um, uh, MXPX. So they're they're only a little bit older, um, but they were doing these things um, that we wanted to do, and how they were doing those things was still in the realm of possibility for us. It was still in the realm of like kind of core DIY. Um, motivations were like okay well they just did this so we can do this um and let's try it that way because they're doing it this way uh so that kind of thing i think you know people talk about sonic influences um which are important but also i don't think people talk much about um influences of practice that is uh how to do it how to be a band um kind of looking at bands like mxpx and and, and the sort um that were yeah and they were kind of doing things that they saw before right this kind of chain this kind of um historical link back to you know bands like black flag in the 80s just having to do everything themselves who screw do things like that that you know i don't know like, that's kind of a romantic idea I, I think yeah i get it i totally understand what you're saying um so with uns- unsung zeros i actually discovered you guys on a eulogy video comp i think is what I, the first time because I, uh, I know the evergreen terrace guys really well mm-hmm. And so they, I, somehow I got a copy of that and I saw you guys on there and I was like, man, this band's badass. Like this, I just, you know, it was just, you know, you watch the video and you're like, oh, I've never heard of this band. This is cool. Yeah. So that's kind of where I got that. How did, how did you guys get linked up with Eulogy and, that, and how did that, how did, did, I guess just talk about Unsung and the touring with that and the records and whatnot real quick. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, because Eulogy, you know, had some, uh, you know, have had some of the most intense hardcore bands in the state. Um, and we're pretty threatless pop punk band um, from Central Florida. So we early on when we started playing, somehow we got um, linked up with uh, South Florida shows a lot. Um, and so we started playing down at like Club Q and SFX Skate Park um, pretty frequently. Um, and more and more we started, we played the factory in Fort Lauderdale. Um, Played in Kindle once down in a warehouse, like with Midtown and the agency. Just all these South Florida shows we started playing, we'd make the drive down there. And I guess over the years, I mean, Eulogy's, you know, South Florida hardcore label. So their heroes to the ground all the time. And at a certain point, they contacted us and said, you know, do we want to be on their label? And at the time for us, I mean, that was, of course, we knew what, you know, we knew who the Eulogy was and we were really into being on that record label just because it had a kind of, you know, at the time, a, a status that we wanted to be associated with. Um, and Eulogy got so much slack when they signed us. And like, I mean, the Eulogy message board at the time was pretty brutal in terms of like just <laughs> shit talking and stuff like that. And so when they signed us, it was just a melee. Um, but, you know, they always, you know, they're great. Uh, John Wiley and, um, uh, you know, Ian and Dan, uh, those guys, they were all in the band until the end as well. And, you know, we knew the Keepsake guys um, through Eulogy. So I don't know. I guess they just liked what we were doing. And, they, and you know, 
they signed us and we put out two an NEP and a full length on eulogy before we kind of things started changing a little bit after that. But yeah, we went on a tour actually uh, with those until the end. Uh, this day Ford, which some of those guys yeah. ended up in Circa, um, Keepsake. I think those are the three bands on the tour and then other bands would play certain shows. We played with Unearth in Boston and we got to play CBGB on that tour before it closed. Um, and that was kind of a wild eye-opening experience. You know, we were still young kids, and, the, you know, you're kind of playing a hardcore show in New York City. Um, Mike Ski from Brothers Keeper <laughs> went to that show, um, and he got stabbed in the leg. Whoa. At that show during Until the End set. Um, <laughs> and I, I had that memory. I'm like, was that true? Like, am I just, like, thinking? Because I don't have any <laughs> any record of it, you know? We weren't taking photos a lot. It was before our phones and, you know, um, and I, I looked it up on the internet. And yeah, there's a there's an entry in like PunkNews.org about Mike Ski being stabbed at this show. Um, it was in January, I want to say, of uh, 2001 or 2002. Um, and luckily he was okay. But you know, jeez, um, I was like fresh out of high school, probably 20 <laughs> years old or something. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I was always always been really grateful, you know, to Jim still in touch with some of those guys. Um, I don't know. It was great. And that, you know, we had already been touring. We never really had a, um, a set agent, um, a booking agent. So we were doing a lot of those tours ourselves, um, which kind of was one of the reasons I kind of wanted to move on. It was, it was getting a little tiring. Um, and, you know, all, all, the, all those kind of reservations you start to have. Um, we'd go on tour after tour. Um, and Jerry, to, to his credit, you know, he was a guitar player. He would book these tours. I don't know how I did it. I can barely book shows now um, with the internet and stuff. It's almost impossible. Um, so back then it must have been doubly. Uh, so, but yeah, I was, you know, I guess we signed a eulogy in 2001, maybe um, 2000. I can't remember, but it was a lot of fun. We had some, we loved South Florida. I mean, we loved Central Florida too, um, but you know, South Florida is like a second home to us. Um, so yeah. That's rad. I've ha- I heard nothing but good things. Uh, from the ET guys as well. They always had good things to say mm. about that label. Yeah, just they definitely had their niche down there, which was really cool. And Yeah, and I think South Florida Hardcore so good, too. I know. All of it was so good. It wasn't just like, oh, community. And, and you know, there's also, like, really rad bands coming out of South Florida that I still listen to. The, I guess when it comes to hardcore bands, that have kind of made an imprint on me. It's like, you know, obviously bands like Boys in the Well, um, Strong Arm, yeah. um, you know, really just – Super influential great. bands. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So I know you mentioned uh, kind of uh, you started to kind of look elsewhere. Is that kind of where you joined May? Is that kind of where that how, how did that materialize? Just I, let's just go over that a little bit. Yeah. So when I guess it was in 2001, um, maybe 2002 or the end of 2001, somewhere around there. May, uh, we ended up touring with May, Unsung Zero's tour with May. And that's how we met them. It was Unsung Zeros, Punchline, and May. So May was super green. I think their record had just, the Destination Beautiful CD had just come out in 2000. I guess it was 2002. Um, And we met them. uh, We did the tour with them. And we got along with them really, really well. Um, It was super easy. I remember there being already like press around this band May. Um, a lot of like some hype around them 
and it was really discouraging in one sense for us because we had been touring for so long, you know, just kind of not not, not like a like a a hateful kind of thing, like antagonistic kind of thing, but just like, man, you know, like I wish we could be like this band kind of thing. What do they have going on? So it was discouraging in that sense a little bit. Um, and it just so happens that on that tour, their guitarist, Matt, um, and Matt played us. Um, I almost said Spittle the Spitfire, that hardcore band Spitfire. Oh, yeah, Matt, Matt back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh yeah, that's right. He was in that band. Yeah, I was the first one that I that he was the first one I met in May and, and kind of talked to. And months later, you know, as the tour wind was winding down, as our tour together was winding down, um, Matt just left uh, pretty quickly and kind of left him high and dry a little bit. And they still had dates to do. And um, Unsung Sears ended that tour with them in like summer of two thousand. I guess three or something. I don't know. And um, I just said, hey, and they had more dates to do. And I, I was going to just stay home. And I was thinking about it. I already told the Unsung's Ears guys that I don't want to you know, tour as much anymore, I think. And I don't know exactly what I said, but I remember wanting to register back for classes at UCF um, after this tour. And But it was summertime. So I said, okay, well, if you guys, if May, if you need a guitar player to kind of get you through these dates, until you kind of have a break and get home and get home and get another guitar player. I'll do it. I don't know why I thought I could do it. Um, you know, I, I just said that I would. And so they said, okay. Um, after that tour, they went out West to do a, a video shoot, um, for that song, uh, summertime. I think it was for summertime. And I would just talk with Dave. Um, Dave's a singer for, you know, and, uh, he would, I would listen to the songs in my room. I'd figure them out, and then i ask them if I'm playing the right parts over the phone. So we that's why we communicated, and then they came back and picked me up. I was in games all the time. They picked me up, and um, we played our first show in some West Virginia church basement, um, and we had not rehearsed together ever. Um, I had just talked to Dave about the guitar parts I had to play. Um and that's like what how it happened. It was just like this weird thing where I said, I can do it. And they said, okay. Um, and so that lasted for a little while until Matt Beck decided to come back. Um, and he came back. And then I went home. And sure enough, you know, he left again. And the second time I flew out from uh, Orlando to Rochester and met up with them at this town called Water Street, I think it's called. Um, and play with them there. It was actually a show with Unsung Zeros, which is kind of weird. So my <laughs> first show with my, you know, the second show I came back with May was with Unsung Zeros as well. And they had a friend named Chris playing guitar at that time. So it was weird. I mean, you know, I, my that show was like the start of a tour. I mean, being on tour with Elliot after that mm -hmm. uh, with May. And so from there, I just kind of stayed with the band. And we never really stopped touring until like 2000. I don't know, six or something, and we toured for a while. So that's kind of how that met or how that worked out. I was playing, touring in Unsung Zeros. We toured with May. I was kind of wrapping up on the Unsung Zeros thing. And so I said I'd help May out for a short while, but it ended up being, you know, all these years since. That's awesome. Um, so when you first, 
join May, obviously, is touring. How long after that did you just become a member? I mean, was that kind of like a – like you said, Matt came back and whatnot, but was that kind of a evolving thing, or is it something that was like you're in the band? You're the band. Yeah, it wasn't an immediate thing. So I think for a while they were still unsure what they wanted to do. Um, even after the second time that Matt left, you know, I, I'm not really sure what was in their heads regarding me as being a permanent member of the band. Um, but it was weird because we never really had enough time to stop and think about if that was the best idea, or I, I should say if they could think about if it was the best idea, because we were touring so much. And once they were in the floor of touring and they had someone that could play the parts, um, you know, it just allowed them to continue to tour and they didn't have to stop and think about it and teach someone else this, uh, all that stuff. And we were getting along really well, uh, me with all the uh, four other guys. Um, there was never any kind of social situation that made it questionable. That actually made it a lot more easier, I think, for them and for me uh, to kind of just like sink into it and just keep playing. And eventually, you know, because Destination Beautiful had already been released when I joined. So from that point on, you know, they were already thinking about the second record and things were picking up. And at some point it was just kind of, I, I don't know if they ever told me for sure. It's like, hey, do you want to be in the band? I think there might have been a conversation, but I can't remember. Eventually I was just like, okay, well, I'm in the band now. And we started writing stuff um, for the Everglow. And, you know, by that time, yeah, it was just kind of this thing whereas in the band and if i'm gonna you know for writing then i said well, i guess i'm gonna be on the next record um so by then it's kind of like okay i'm in the band very cool yeah that was cool so that leads me to my next thing which is the everglow i definitely want to talk about that record um for me phenomenal record front to finish or front to finish absolute gem um love ken andrews massive ken and a massive failure fan so that's even, even. Yeah. <laughs> kind of want to get into that. I want to get into the recording of, of the record somewhat and with Ken Andrews and kind of on the, we'll go from there. Um, I don't even know how, and I, full, you know, full disclosure, I wasn't, I was not a failure fan before I joined up with the May guys. I, no, I was not, I just didn't know a failure. Um, and while we were on the, uh, in our van and traveling stuff like that, I was listening to a lot of music that they were listening to. Um, that I, you know, I was like a punk rock kid and into hardcore music and, you know, I was somewhat into like indie or emo or whatever it was, but, you know, they were more, they were like, you know, Kent fans and... Oh yeah, I love Kent. Um, things like that. So they're kind of more in deep into that scene than I was. And so I was learning a lot and they always talked about failures. Like, I didn't know who failure was. Um, and eventually, I, you know, we listened to them. And so I... I wish I had a better story about how we actually snagged Ken Andrews to do the record. I knew that, you know, Tooth and Nail was really great. I think they're really excited about what was going to be the Everglow. May was doing pretty well at the label and things kept going kind of up and up. He tore a simple plan. You know, um, some, you know, what, what wouldn't, it'd be silly to think of it now, but like quote unquote high profile stuff, it is something corporate. Um, so we were playing to a lot of people and everything was going really well. And the guys just thought to get Ken Andrews, um, or ask and see if he's available. Um, I, cause I guess that he had done some production work that they knew about, and I don't know the history of Ken Andrews production. Like I, did he do Blink of the Star? 
He might have. I, I mean, can't remember. You know, Year of the Rabbit and yeah, um, the things rabbit. like that, his band. And yeah, I know. I wish uh, Dave was here. I, I, he could maybe say, you know, because he maybe have a better rem- memory about how Tooth and Nail actually got a hold of Ken Andrews. And if Ken Andrews had worked with someone adjacent to the Tooth and Nail world, who knows? But somehow, uh, Ken Andrews was available. And it's so funny now because we, you know, <laughs> he's such a massive producer and uh, now, so his price has gone way up. And I, <laughs> I'm so glad that we were able to get him at whatever price we did. That was, I'm sure it was a budget um, or, you know, a, a good price. And he was available and, yeah, and you know, so for me, I didn't, I didn't know who he was, and so I just kind of went to the studio, and he was really nice, you know. Um, and we can get into the conversation about recording in a minute, but yeah, I, I think that's. I'm not really sure how he got Ken Andrews, but we did. We were able to snag him, and he didn't really do much um, pre-pro on that record because we had everything so dialed in by the time we got to the studio. Um, you know, we were recording stuff on the bus and we were recording stuff down to like percussion on the bus. So, you know, we were way beyond having to work out demo ideas once we got to the studio and pre-production or anything. Everything was pretty nailed down. Um, and we worked through some stuff in the studio, but for the most part, it was all done. And so we just pulled up and, and you know, we literally, from the, from the Simple Plan tour, um, that ended in LA, I guess, or somewhere nearby. And so the bus just dropped us off at the studio and we started recording uh, Everglow. Was, um, are you a big failure fan now or now that you've uh, kind of, or do you appreciate the band and whatnot? Yeah, I appreciate the band a lot now. I mean, when I heard, uh, you know, was it Fantastic Planet? Planet, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, everything made sense. Why everyone, you know, why that band was what they were. Yeah. It's that many people. And, you know, the band was always kind of a self-produced monster, you know, um, so yeah, now I'm a fan of uh, Failure. I got to see him um, twice since then, uh, once it started touring again, which was really cool. One time in Nashville yeah. and then one time in Virginia Beach. Um, and, you know, uh, Ken still, you know, he'll respond if I, you know, you know, he's, you know, we're not buds by any means, um, yeah. but, you know, he's super nice still. Um, and now, yeah, big Failure fan. That's awesome. Do you <laughs> think Ken... At the time when you guys were recording, do you think he was into what you guys were doing or was he just, you know, I mean. Yeah, I think he was in some way. Um, Maybe by that, I mean, maybe he thought the music was okay, but he liked the potential of being able to work with a band like this for his own kind of um, kind of creative path moving forward and development or what have you in, in that world. Again, I don't know how many records he had done before Everglow, so I don't want to shortchange him and act like this is something new to him. Maybe he's already used to it. I don't know. Um, but uh, I feel like he did like like the songs. You know, yeah. I don't think he would have worked with us if he didn't like the songs, at least to some degree. I remember we did this kind of extra um, special edition of the Everglow that had a DVD on it and there's some interviews with Ken Andrews about um, working with us and you know I remember him speaking fondly I remember him saying things like you know the problem with the, the difficulty with May was that you know we had too many ideas melodic ideas so he talks mm-hmm. about kind of you know he, he expresses a familiarity with our songs um, and you know I do think that he was a fan to some degree you know I don't want to say that we are a, 
you know, this kind of amazing opportunity for him um, in that sense. Uh, it was an amazing opportunity for us. And as far as we could tell, um, he was into what we were doing enough to care. You know, he was a great producer, um, great engineer. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. That's really awesome. I love him. He's amazing. <laughs> I really do. I, I like. It's funny because when I was younger, I was a hardcore kid as well, and I had some friends that were like, "You should check out Failure, Fantastic Planet." And I'm like, and I remember buying it at a Camelot Music or something, and I was like, "This record sucks," you know, blah blah blah. <laughs> you know, 20 years later, I'm like, I was an idiot. You know, it was like I just ate Earth Crisis 24/7. You know, and it's like oh, now cool. I'm like. Like they blow my mind on the reg. Even their new stuff's incredible. It's yeah, like it's a bummer. Like how hindsight just kind of kicks in the ass. Because you're right. I mean, I was so restricted to kind of like hardcore music and the culture and the identity, and it kind of closed off so many great bands. I were still doing things, yep. or you know, they ended up breaking up or whatever. And Failure is one of them. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Um. So yeah, I mean, even now, if I listen to like the song uh, "Smoking Umbrellas," yeah. Um. You know, just so intense and so heavy um so yeah i understand exactly what you mean sweet well uh let's get back into everglow just kind of let's uh talk about maybe the recording of of it do you remember some certain things i know i read uh the link you sent me kind of your blog which um uh, uh you know it was just really interesting by the way i really enjoyed that um and uh so kind of just maybe talk about the recording of that record anything that you remember specifically or things that you just uh, gravitate to, I guess, in, the, in those times. Yeah, when I think about recording the Everglow, it's all fond memories. Um, we were getting along really well, as far as I could tell at the time, the band uh, interpersonally. We stayed in one apartment um, for this one. Uh, and so we were hanging out a lot together. Um, we go to the studio every day. And, you know, you get into your rituals and things like that. And I don't know. I just remember there not being a lot of negative pressure, only positive energy. Um, you know, we were working really well. We were we were working really, really well creatively at the time. I think that only got better, you know, especially in the singularity sessions. But um I don't know. I just remember like bringing out Ken Andrews Marshall to record guitars. And I'm just like, you know, we walked in and we see all this um, Ken and failure gear in the hallway. Um, and by that time I was, you know, it's like in the studio, it was, it was called NRG, um, massive studio. We got somehow got the A room. Um, and it was just all fun memories. I remember at one point we were recording that song Breakdown. And Ken did suggest um, a change to the structure of the song that we had already kind of like, uh, you know, married our minds to or whatever. And uh, it's funny because we we're, you know, we we're young and this is our first time like kind of together in a big studio with a bigger name. And we had not ever had anyone challenge, not challenge, but suggest something else, you know, in terms of our songs. Um, and it was like this weird moment. We were like, and we ended up not, not using Ken's idea. 
Um, but it was this kind of like come to God moment where it's like, okay, what are we going to do? We had to like walk outside. <laughs> what are we going to do? You know, like and now it just would have been this kind of like kind of played out of it, like this kind of exchange. I was like, yeah, no, we'll try with it. But um, yeah, we were, I remember being so nervous because like I don't remember loving the idea that Ken uh, suggested. <clears throat> and it was like this kind of weird moment. But so it's that kind of thing. We're kind of learning how, how it goes. But, um, you know, they had a grand piano in there. And I remember, you know, Rob and Dave uh, always worked really well together. Um, they kind of understood each other musically. Um, in terms of communication, I think that, uh, you know, if there's any kind of theoretical um, questions that had to be had, you know, in terms of chord and you know, music theory, um, and expression, right? They kind of spoke the same language. Um, and that was kind of really cool to see them work together for songs like, you know, We're So Far Away um, and, and whatnot. So, yeah, I don't know. We had a great time. You know, we'd always have wine at nighttime, like we're recording. And then, uh, yeah, these little dogs running around. I don't know, like, they're kind of like fond memories. And the process itself is, as far as I can remember, is pretty easy. You know, I think it was because we had so much of it um, nailed down. There wasn't any kind of like creative necessities in the studio. We didn't need to write anything necessarily. Um, so anything that we would want to come up with, it was just kind of like ornamental. It was kind of on top and to see if it works and what have you. So I just remember there being just a lot of excitement and, um, you know, anticipation about the final product and what was going to happen with Tooth and Nail and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have a favorite song from that record what um, any stories about a special a, a special moment with us a song that you were on that like i guess what's the one that you um shine polish off you know what's the one that you love i the two songs on that record i love the most now are cover me and <clears throat> anything i think cover me is a really weird and cool song if you listen to the record um in the beginning, it's like an acoustic guitar and Dave's singing, and there's a low, low voice that's that's mirroring Dave's. It's not a harmony. It's just like a super low kind of presence that's, that's singing, and that's Ken Andrews, so he kind of put his vocals on it. That's cool. So if you listen to that, you can hear that. Um, I, playing the song live now is a lot of fun. Um, I just think it was like a really cool uh, song, interesting chord progression, interesting vocal melody, and things like that. Um, and anything, it's just like a jam. It's really catchy. I think the um, the intro's uh, really great. Um, and those are the two songs now that I think back on and really, really, really love. Um, and still up to this day, I remember the moment I really kind of felt emotionally attached to the record was when I was listening to um, tracks that they were, you know, just premixes or whatever you call them, like reference tracks, they're sitting back and um, Breakdown was one that I really, really kind of like started um feeling in a more intense way i remember that moment i was in orlando walking around outside of a friend's apartment um and when that bridge of the of the song hit um kind of took me to a cool place and then the other one would be um this is the countdown the that riff on that song um and uh the chorus was something that i started messing around with they're showing iowa I want to say it was Iowa or Idaho. I was getting mixed up, and no offense to anyone who was in Iowa. But I was playing that lead, that the intro riff. But I was playing it in six time signature, um, and they started playing the beat in four, 
Um, and that was the kind of birth of that song. Um, so for me, being the newest member in the band um, and having kind of uh, an idea um, and a song that kind of came out that was kind of most that, that was born out of an idea I had and that the idea remained, you know, and it's on the record. So those four songs, I guess, um, you know, I could talk about more, but I think those songs in particular are ones that I really, really like and, and you know, I have a, an attachment to. Absolutely. Um, let's talk about the reception of the record and, and uh, kind of how Tooth and Nail felt about it, how you guys felt about it when it was complete. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then I guess, yeah, just go ahead and go. Well, it did really well. Um, that's all I remember. I remember the record did really well. I think uh, it was in particular by our, by our fan base, but I also think it grew our fan base. I mean, so I don't, you know, I remember reading positive reviews. Um, I remember Alternative Press always sneaking some kind of slight, subtle jab. <laughs> like, like they'd get a positive review, like overall, but they, I think they said something like, you know, about how we're like a Disney rock band, like something kind of like, you know, slightly insulting. Um, but it could be pinned down as an insult, but more like an observation, because there was a child esque dimension to the record intentionally. Sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think that it was just a well, re- well received record and I'm at the time, you know, alternative press was the main magazine that y'all yeah. wanted in. So, you know, we ended up getting a lot of good press on the record and, um, and the tours that, that were launched from that record. I mean, uh, the main tour from that record was, um, us, Circus Survive, Mew Math. And wow. very an opening band. And to think now that Mew Math was two of four on that lineup and Circus Survive was three of four, like... That's absurd. <laughs> that would not be the case now. Um, but, you know, that kind of thing. You know, I always really liked the bands we took out. I remember playing with Love Drug. Um, and we had, yeah, I don't know, like, from then, you know, on, by that time we were like a bus band. So all of our tours, you know, were comfortable um they were all doing really well um and it's one of those things you know where looking back i mean when i think about joy or happiness attached with with being in a band i think that's the era i, I gravitate towards most but from that you know you kind of start thinking that's when you know i don't know i'm sure you read the blog right about singularity things have been things by that point were a little different in the band yeah um but i remember uh I think it was before we signed to Tooth and Nail for Everglow because we were the band had only signed a license for Descension Beautiful. Okay. Um, so we weren't on a record deal that was guaranteed for the Everglow. Um, and we were visiting, or we were kind of in Seattle hanging out with Tooth and Nail, and Brandon uh, Ebels, the uh, head of Tooth and Nail, was we had Starbucks or something. Um, Brandon Ebels, I said Ebels, Ebel, right? Brandon Ebel. Brent Ebel, Ebel. <laughs> it's embarrassing. Um, <laughs> Brandon, uh, he was hanging out with us and he said, he, I want you to sign, you know, he was like really kind of pushing it. He wanted to sign tooth and nail. I was like, what do you want to do? You, you want me to take my shirt off in Starbucks right here? I'll do it. <laughs> like, okay. And he literally took his shirt off in a Starbucks, <laughs> like some neighborhood outside of Seattle. 
Um, and we signed a, I want to say it was a two record deal, I think with, with Tooth and at that point. Um, and so there's like just a lot of excitement. I think Tooth and was really doing, doing really well at that time because they had Under Oath and, um, and Berlin. We were kind of like this, um, like the Tooth and takeover, I want to say they called it, um, where these three bands were doing really well in their own respective kind of scenes. Um, and it was cool because I know the Anne Berlin guys from back in, you know, Saga 24-7 days. So kind of knowing them um, and being on the same level, you know, now that was a really cool experience for me. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Uh, it was really, really a fun and exciting time and all the shows were good. I remember doing the Tooth and Nail tour a couple times, uh, a couple dates. I don't think we did a full Tooth and Nail tour, but that's when I kind of met the Me Without You guys. And, you know, speaking about, about bands that have been kind of super influential for me personally. Um, so meeting you know, those guys uh, was really cool and, and being beginning the relationship with them that, you know, I saw them play last year, um, you know, the final tour or whatever. Yeah, same here. Yeah, so I've been friends with those guys for a long time um, and just developing those relationships um, over the years. But that time, that era of like 2004 to 2007 um, was spectacular. You know, went to Japan for the first time and subsequently we went to the UK uh, with Code and Cambria and Me Without You, um, all that stuff. So it's just, you know, thinking wow. back, I wish, you know, you'd go back and, you know, they'd say live it again but with this kind of mindset now. So you kind of take advantage of it more. More, totally. more efficiently, yeah. Um, I didn't actually didn't know that. I thought for some reason you guys had already. I know the destination. I didn't know it was licensed. Licensed, I guess. But just out of, real quick, um, was that something? Was that the only label that was interested at that time, or were you or were you guys like gung ho, or was it like? It wasn't the only label that was interested. Actually, um, and people can fact check me on this. So I think Drive Through was interested initially. I think Feel by Ramen was initially interested, and I don't know the degree of interest, um, but I think those labels were kind of in the conversation, so to speak. And uh, John Frazier, who was... Love John. Yeah, great dude. Um, at the time, he was ending his tenure um, at drive-thru. He was at drive-thru for a little bit. Um, and he said, hey, um, don't sign with drive-thru. Um, and he was a Virginia kid, you know, so he kind of had this, you know, connection with May um, and said, I'm going to be over at Tooth and Nail soon. So, you know, I really think it'd be a good fit if you guys were on Tooth and Nail. And of course, you know, there was this kind of Christian connection because all the guys came up in the church. Um, and looking back, you know, Drive Through might have been the more exciting label at the time, but it would have been a it seems like it would have been a kind of a weird move for May to go to Tooth and Nail. I'm sorry, to, to drive through. Um, and so we ended up, the band ended up kind of talking to Tooth and Nail. And I don't know how the band ended up securing a license deal with Tooth and Nail for one record. Yeah. That yeah. seems like a pretty impressive feat for a bunch of, uh, you know, young kids that, you know, they did record the record themselves and went in that sense they could kind of give the record to, to Tooth and Nail without taking any money from them for, for recording. Yeah. And maybe that kind of played into there's a, there's an independent kind of leverage that, that may was able to kind of, um, you know, rely on, but I don't, I wasn't in those conversations. So I can't speak too much about it, but it was just a license deal the tooth and nail. And so after that record was out, um, you know, we, the band still owned the record. Um, and so we were still free agents, so to speak. Um, I think in our minds, I think we all kind of, 
wanted to stay on Tooth and Nail. I there was never a big conversation about um, going to a different label um, before the Everyone came out. Then thought I remember, um, but that's how the connection of Tooth and Nail is through John Fraser that we ended up on Tooth and Nail. And John Fraser remained, you know, our close contact and, and friend um, through the Tooth and Nail years. Um, I mean, even beyond for sure. But like in that kind of realm, he was. You know, like our A&R, he was just like there for us. And, you know, I've heard different stories from different bands about their experience on Tooth and Nail. Um, and luckily, you know, they've, our relationship with Tooth and Nail has always been strong. Um, and they've never kind of put us in a position that was, you know, too, too intense or problematic for us, uh, you know. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I, I really kind of still, you know, review Tooth and Nail fondly and, you know, oh, they sent so many great bands and, so yeah very cool well i guess uh the next thing was uh obviously the singularity record um and i know you guys obviously went to capital was was that an upstream type deal i know because they had um kind of uh the farm system i guess if you will mm -hmm. or was that something you guys just signed separately i, I guess let's just go into that record a little bit and kind of yeah have... there was definitely a connection the emi connection between um tooth and nail and capital and um, you know, May wanted to, ended up, we, we always kind of wanted to be on a major label. Uh, we didn't really have a time, uh, a timeline by which that would happen. We just ultimately kind of didn't, we never had any kind of weird qualms about going to a major. We always, we kind of wanted to see what a major could do for us. After the Everyone came out, um, Louis Bandek was working at Capital at the time. I don't know if he's still there or not, but probably no, I don't think so. Um, What's a record label? <laughs> <laughs> what happened to all these people? No. Um, and, you know, we talked to him and he said that he had been um, watching us for a while. Um, and then, no, I don't know. It, everything about the capital conversations we had felt really good. Um, they had a great team at the time. Uh, Tom Osborne was a product manager, and he was he came from Vagrant Records. Um, Andy Slater was the president, I think, of Capital at the time, and he was he had kind of a reputation for being pretty lenient in terms of what bands wanted to do. I mean, Capital signed so many. I mean, I think the '90s in general were a great time for labels, but I, I think uh, you know Capital had signed. I mean, they signed Sparkle Horse. You know, I think they had this kind of I don't know. I remember liking the roster. I remember liking Capital. We talked to other labels. I think uh, Atlantic maybe was one of them. But I don't think the talks ever kind of advanced too much. I think Capital was always the the one we kind of aim for. We're moving forward, and I think because of the relationship with Tooth and Nail, that made it easier. Because um, you know we had another record, I think contractually that we owed to Tooth and Nail, so Capital had to buy us out. Um, from uh from tooth and nail but yeah i don't know i think we just made the decision um you know looking back i wish we wouldn't have made the decision i wish we would have stayed on tooth and nail for one more record um i think you know because by the time we signed to capital you know all this kind of stuff started happening with the the um the industry shake up and not that indie labels were, I think Tooth and Nail was still officially indie at the time. I don't know if, I don't know if EMI was like, I don't know if Tooth and Nail was like wholly 
um, kind of independent stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, either way, I can't remember, but I just remember making the decision to sign the capital, and um, we were excited. Uh, but I think, yeah, I just think we should have signed on Tuesday now because we wanted to do things musically um, that were a little bit out of our comfort zone. I feel like, um, and I don't know if that's the best time to go to a major. Maybe it is. I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's always hard to kind of understand or know what would have happened otherwise. But we decided to send a sign to Capital, and a lot of it had to do with Louis. Um, he was a great A&R. I still, you know, that relationship remains strong. Um, and it just ended up being a bad scene um, just because of everything that started. You know, we ended up kind of, you know, I think we ended up on diversion somehow because of, um, you know, corporate shakeover or shakeups or whatever. Um, yeah, I remember signing the contract. I remember being on the bus. We were in the bus in Virginia Beach before tour. We all signed. Um, we were excited, but we're, I think we were all kind of nervous. <laughs> I think we were. <laughs> like the excitement was tempered, you know? Um, but yeah, I don't know. We just did it because we thought that we knew where we wanted to be. And I guess we felt that the moment was the right moment to go to, to a major label. Um, and I don't know if it was, but yeah, that's that's. I mean, that's how it happened. Did you feel like with the success of the Everglow? Did you feel like well, obviously it's the next logical step, but did you feel like we're just gonna crush this? I was confident. I don't think I was that confident. Um, I don't think we were that confident. I think we kind of held that possibility in our heads. Um, but I think at the same time to have a, it's kind of naive. It's kind of naive at the same time. Um, but yeah, I don't know at the time, like I said, once we kind of kept playing and like, we were getting so, I don't know, it's just like any band you, you start playing really, really well together. And we were all kind of at our top form, um, in that sense. And so we were confident, um, and it's just so like funny that, you know, that confidence, um, was met with, you know, what eventually happened with with singularity this kind of like you know kind of knocking your knees a little bit and taking your knees out um and kind of giving you a a wake-up situation i mean things outside like leading up to capital there are weird things that were going on with the band and we just started talking about publishing differently um and that was like a big uh obstacle to kind of like get through um that was a real kind of I think that was a transform transformative moment, uh, transformative moment moving forward. Um, and from then, like within the capital stuff, I don't know. It's like a bad kind of a, a bad storm, a, a perfect storm, so to speak, of interpersonal rifts, um, insecurity issues, uh, kind of veiled over by over secure overconfidence, kind of thing. Um, yeah, it's kind of a weird mess. Um, and within that mess, you know. There are ups and downs. I'm not trying to express that like we were always. It was exciting, but like there are all these there are these kind of things Very um, that were happening, um, and they just kind of happening. They just kind of continued happening in that way. Um, yeah. So we ended up recording Singularity, um, which was its own beast in and of itself. That's cool. Um, Howard Benson. I, I I remember reading what you sent me earlier. A, a, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but um, maybe Capital set it up to where he potentially was the available yeah. 
person or i mean is that i mean you don't have to obviously comment on that in particular but just uh i mean obviously he's a obviously renowned mm-hmm. producer and i think he you know the record sounds fantastic um yeah i just kind of maybe delve on that just a little bit <laughs> yeah i don't know how that ended up being like because if you were to ask us who we wanted to produce our record howard benson was not on our radar at all so in the very reductive sense if we want to talk about major labels directing bands to do certain things they don't want to do then yes we end up somehow with howard benson producing our record our first major label release um but capital they weren't direct in terms of saying this is who you're going to work with you know we had our laundry list of producers that we wanted to work with um and like you know that i wrote in that blog you know we talked about Eric Valentine and Gil Norton and Brendan O'Brien. Um, but they just weren't available. And maybe they weren't available. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not I don't I'm not trying to get, say that Capital was like straight up lying to us. I think, you know, those all producers were popular producers and they were all busy. Um, but somehow Howard Benson, who was another just like Grand Slam producer, was available. Um, and he had been like a capital pipeline, it seems like, for bands like us. Um, you know, a lot of bands, like I know Reliant K worked with Howard Benson, um, Seosin, uh, yeah. Used, um, I want to say My Kim. Um, so, not that they're all capital bands, but he was kind of in that world. Yeah. Um, he even produced like Less Than Jake's uh, Hello Rock View record, which, yeah. um, you know, it's funny. I don't. I don't remember if I made that connection when we started to, talking to Howard Benson in May, because I was a big fan of that Lesson Drake record. Um, but yeah, so we ended up working with with Howard Benson, and it seemed like a weird fit, in my opinion, because um, May was always kind of interested in the kind of. I won't say. I think. Like artistic interest is a little pretentious. I mean, we we like certain bands that. You know, we're not necessarily reductive pop music, um, but we liked pop music. It was like this kind of weird thing. You know, I think that's like you see a lot of indie bands, um, you know, like the Get Up Kids or Piebald or, you know, they there's definitely a pop sensibility to all this stuff. And, you know, we weren't trying to ignore that. We wanted to take advantage of that. But we also wanted to maintain this kind of um, characteristic that wasn't necessarily all about catchiness you know um but howard benson's mindset was not that his mindset was very radio oriented um despite radio's weird declining moment at, the, at that time he was like you know what's going to attack what's going to attract people to your music in a matter of seconds you know and that's what he said this kind of appeal to the lowest common denominator um, in terms of listener, I'm just like, man, you know, to think about that, it's like almost offensive, you know, like, you know, let's think about the music listener that you don't care about really attracting. I mean, we weren't, you know, I don't know, it's weird to say, because it sounds like I'm contradicting myself. In one sense, we wanted a bigger audience, but at the same time, we didn't want an audience that was just kind of, um, you know, we had our... Um, identities and those identities were wrapped up in the indie punk rock and hardcore world you know and so in that sense a lot of that identity was made in distinction from what we were you know problematically referred to a mainstream audience whatever that would mean um 
and that the indie scene in that sense kind of put up certain barriers that kind of, you know, um, maintain that distinction. And I think, you know, a band like uh, Jimmy World um, represents this kind of turning point, yeah. you know, where you have a record like Clarity that still has this kind of artistic character that was very much rooted in, yeah. um, you know, the, the culture of emo music at the time. But it was released on Capitol. And then you go to, um, you know, Bleed American, um, and it's just pure, you know, pop yep. to me. It's just a pure rock record, right? Yep. Um, and in that world, in between those two records, you have this kind of like, um, you know, discourse going on, this kind of back and forth, this dynamic. Um, and we were interested in that dynamic, you know. Um, and we, you know, but I think it's really hard to um navigate that um in general but i think it's even more difficult the way we were doing it um at the time we were doing it i don't know it's hard to explain and i don't yeah and it's not a comparison to me world at all i use that as a metaphor or an analogy just because you know i think that band represents both worlds totally. but for some reason we're not surprised by jimmy world releasing blue american but I think those records are so sonically distinct. I don't know why we're not more surprised. You know, like everything about the relationship between, between those two records. Um, so, and then we had this guy, Howard Benson, who was, you know, just a, he wanted to make the biggest record you could make. Um, and that's great, you know. Um, but yeah, whatever that, you know, happened, whatever, however that manifested in the recording such of Singularity, um, ended up making a record that people, didn't respond positively to and you know we did demos um we we had a pre-production session um and yeah so when i think about that record i don't this is not to say that howard benson was the problem howard benson was a great producer um he worked mainly with dave upstairs you know in the vocal booth he wasn't necessarily he wasn't around us recording guitars all he really cared about um was you know, catchiness and, and vocal hooks and harmonies. And uh, he was that kind of producer. He wasn't very hands-on with guitar stuff, you know. Um, but there is this kind of orientation towards simplicity, this orientation towards directness. Um, one of the things I remember was when we first recorded, the first song we did was uh, Brink of Disaster. And there's this kick pattern in that song. Um, that we had from pre-production and it was like a lot of the complex kick pattern. It was just a, you know, it wasn't like odd time signatures, just like a lot of kicks, you know, um, a lot of kick drum uh, work. Bop, 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 bop. Sorry, I'm, I'm in my mind just vocalizing. <laughs> and Howard Benson said, okay, well, let's, you know, let's kill that and just make it snare, snare, like yeah. super, super simple. And now, you know, you know, 41 years old and that it sounds better than probably did before, you know, but if you're a May fan, if you're in the world of indie music that we were like, we're not used to that. We're used to kind of, you know, we were kind of accustomed to weird, you know, complexities that yeah. make sense to us, you know, um, and making things more technical than they had to be. Um, so if you're thinking about a mainstream listener or a radio listener, that move makes perfect sense. Um, and I think it makes the song stronger, ultimately, which is why this kind of relationship I have to Singularity is so weird, because I think it is um, and my favorite record 
but it's really wrapped up in all these weird things that I can't express to people um, because they weren't there. And a lot, a lot of it has to do with my, my own internal kind of hangups and whatnot. But I think as a record and as a band performing the record, um, it's, it's really, I, I like it yeah. a lot. Um, but yeah, the whole situation of the record, making the record was different. We were in different apartments. So we were separated from each other. Um, I don't think Dave and Rob were getting along too well. And when those guys don't get along, it makes it more difficult because they, like I mentioned earlier, they work really well together creatively. But, you know, interpersonally, it was getting more difficult between them. Um, And I was living with Mark and Rob in my apartment and Dave was with Jacob and uh, our videographer, Brett. Um, So, yeah, I mean, there were like these kind of weird divisions happening and they weren't dramatic. They were just there. Um, and Rob was isolated. He was doing keyboards like under the stairs. It sounds, it sounds like more abusive than it was, but like he, was, <laughs> um, he, he had to kind of carve out his own keyboard space because the producers on our producer and the and engineers were big guitar guys. I had a blast cause they were just all guitar guys, but Mark didn't have too much fun playing bass. He felt kind of rushed, like he wasn't necessarily getting to express himself creatively as, as much as he wanted to. And I think the bass playing on that record is phenomenal. It's one of my favorite things about that record is Mark's bass playing. Um, it's very subtle, but it's very melodic. And so Rob was like, you know, in his little spot. Um, Dave was upstairs. Jacob was already done by the drums like the first week. Um, so there's just like a lot of like discontinuity between our social yeah. uh, relationships. Um, and the pressure of tooth and nail um you know i'm sure dave was under a lot of pressure uh just because he was a singer he was he was a primary songwriter a lot of those songs um and i'm sure that he had different pressures to consider to concern himself with that we weren't privy to um and that kind of thing is just like it's just difficult to navigate um in the moment because you want everything to succeed um you know and we did it, you know, so yeah, after that record came out, it just didn't do as well as we wanted it to. Um, but there's all these other things happening, like Tooth and Nail, I'm sorry, Capital was kind of collapsing. Um, and, you know, uh, just that story that you've heard a thousand times about the band's first major label record, these yeah. things happened. We lost all the people working the record. Um, and it just ended up, you know, not being as successful as we wanted it to be. And ultimately, um, you know, I think from there, once those tours, once the record kind of was not doing as well, whatever that would mean at the time, I think that I think the Everglow sold like 19,000 records first week. Um, and I think Singularity maybe sold 15,000. So it was like a step down. Mm. But now, like, that's those are like really incredible numbers for what's happening now. Oh, yeah. Um, and then the tour wasn't as well successful as I wanted it to be. We took out as tall as lions, I mm, think. Yeah. The main, and that band was so rad. They were yeah, so great. Good. I booked them a couple times. Yeah. Um, and um, it didn't do as well as I wanted to. I think uh, what was the other band? I can't remember. But um, and then from there, I just say like, things just kind of didn't pan out the way we wanted them to. Um, and that's, you know, Rob and Mark made the decision to leave. And that was right before we went on tour of the Motion City soundtrack in Berlin, um, which was a massive tour. Um, but even then, like the response was just different. It was weird. Yeah. Um, I can't explain it. And then from there, it's just kind of, you know, 
had to find a new way to do things. But Singularity was this kind of turning point um, in that sense because, you know, we were on the incline the whole time up until Singularity. And then once I released, kind of plateaued and kind of started kind of, you know, teetering out a bit. And and that's always difficult. Uh, and, you know, we were immature in our own ways maybe and didn't, didn't didn't have the kind of horizon horizonist thinking that we needed to have. Yeah. Um, so if we would have stayed together and maybe worked out some of the things we needed to work out as a five piece. Um, who knows, you know, what would have happened after that, but it didn't work out that way. So Yeah. Um I I'm in the in the blog that you sent me, I I was gonna mention you kind of touched on it, um, just kind of the separation of each other of each other. I think you like you said, it just kind of comes out of the music in some way, shape or form, which I totally totally understand um but um do you looking back on it do you I, I think you mentioned as well if you would have used ken andrews again or something or someone else looking back is that something would it would it have sound completely com, sounded completely different do you think or i mean yeah would it sound completely different you know i'd, I'd be curious to to think about you know because we had so much pre-production for this for singularity um we have different versions of the songs and i wish i could find them they're probably on mark's one of his old hard drives somewhere we went in a house rented a house in virginia beach and um you know that was one of these things like capital we were on capital at the time they paid for it capital spent almost like a million dollars on this record which That's is insane it's insane um so we had this like big house in virginia we we brought all our gear in there um and we recorded all these demos and, um, you know, Howard definitely put his hand on those demos um, and kind of oriented and shaped them in the way he saw what was going to serve the song the best. And these were all in conversation with us. You know, we made these decisions together. But there's always this kind of like power situation, power dynamic in these situations, yeah. right? So, I, you know, it was not a democratic vibe. Um, and I don't think that's always healthy for there to be a purely democratic vibe in a writing situation. I'm not here to make any comments about proper working dynamics, but for us, there's this kind of knowing how to navigate a situation like that, which is kind of a, a, a daily kind of learning experience. Yeah. Um, so, you know, to think about, you know, Ken Andrews recording the record, you know, I would love to somehow re-record that record with Ken Andrews. Um, but it wouldn't be the same now because I couldn't remember if there were creative decisions made by Howard Benson that changed the, the nature of the songs. Um, then I don't know if Ken Andrews obviously would have done the same way. Yeah. Um, looking back, you know, in one sense, I do wish we would have gone with Ken Andrews. He was willing to do the record. Um, but for whatever reason, and I say that for whatever reason, not to remove responsibility from may in terms of making that decision but there's the way that he was available and that capital kind of did slightly nudge us to, to use howard benson simply by saying oh well, howard benson's available he wants to do it he's interested in that kind of thing you know um we're not we were not getting that from capital for about any other producers mm. um that i remember and you know i would have liked now to have done the record with ken andrews um so I think Ken Andrews wanted to do the record. I think he was excited to do the record just based on the fact that we did Everglow together. Um, and maybe I'm wrong. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I, I would like to go back in time and it would be cool to see what Ken Andrews would have done with the record. Like Singularity, because it was more guitar driven, um, more like 
a lot more kind of guitar riffs um, in singularity. And so to see what, you know, Ken would have done tonally even with those things, that would have been really cool. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. What's uh real quick, what on the last thing on singularity, what's your favorite song on that record? Um, I think my favorite song on that record is reflections. It's the last track. Um, and I think Bring Disaster is really solid. I think on Great top, really good. Um, I think those three are my favorite, but I think Re- uh, Reflections is my top track on that record. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just about the vibe. Um, maybe that's also about recording that song. I had a good time recording that song. My favorite song from those sessions, though, is not even on the record. It's on a B-side that we listen, released in Japan, maybe called Novocaine. Mm. Um, yeah, I think you mentioned that in the blog. Yeah, that song is super cool. We had uh, Dave and Jacob's friend Kenna um, sing on that song. And I remember in pre-production, we showed Howard Benson that song, and he didn't like it at all. So we recorded that song when he was not in the studio. Um, and we had so much fun uh, that day um, recording that song. So yeah, that's my, that's probably my favorite song from the sessions. My favorite song on Singularity um, is probably Reflections. Um, I remember the first song we released, not released, but revealed to people and like through our kind of video blogs or whatever was um, Last Transmission One. Yeah, and it was like a secret track that was we wanted to put it first on the record, but Capital was like, well, you know, let's think about this because. At the time, remember listening stations that were in record stores? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Kind of like uh, you think about listening to music now with Spotify, like in a, on a playlist, like you want to, you know, there's a lot of competition. So there's like, look, you want people to hear something they like really as soon as possible. Right. Um, and so they didn't want to put that song first because it was kind of an uncharacteristic song for us. It was a riff heavy song, um, very aggressive. But um, I love that song. And that song was like, it's a reverse track. So you like do the first track and rewind it and it's there somehow. Um, And Rob wrote that guitar riff on the acoustic guitar. And it was really cute because Rob would always play with like one finger on each fret, you know, Mm -hmm. just like very rudimentary kind of uh, approach. Um, And he wrote this riff and then we took it and made it like a really... Uh, you know, and, and a really great kind of song. I like it, but that's the first song we exposed to people on on YouTube, and they didn't like that either. Like it was kind of like it's kind of foreshadowing of what was to come of the, the reception of the record in general. People, I mean, people definitely didn't like Singularity. Um, and like I said in the blog, I don't necessarily blame them. I knew it was like a, a departure, um, especially for a band like May that was kind of characterized also by this kind of, I don't know, I guess positivity um as for lack of a better term yeah optimism um and it's, a darker, record, it's a darker record for sure yeah darker and uh even sonically like not even just yeah. lyrically but sonically i think the record's a little more intense um so yeah 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 well i really liked just let go i think that was a fantastic oh yeah that was the single i think was that the, it might have tried been. to release that at radio i think that was the one we, no wait it wasn't i'm fine i'm wrong it was uh, sometimes I can't make it alone. That was the single from the oh, record, yeah. and that's the record that they made us record that after the fact because they's like, you know, we don't think we have a single. We type. need a hit. Yeah, and that was literally what it was. 
um, and that song was not a hit. And I think Just Let Go probably would have fared better. Um, but do you release that song to alternative radio? At the time, I don't know if it would have played at all. Would it be adult contemporary or like kind of? Yeah. What you know, that's another thing I went into like the strategy about that record is like how do we market May? Because they're not necessarily at the time, you know, 2007, the the rock and roll, the guitar music scene on and the mainstream wasn't the best, you know, um, in terms of like a lot of like a new metal stuff going on, um, and rock radio was a, a, a tough territory, I think. Um, and so there's questions about how to do that as well and like how, what, what approach to take promotionally um, for the band and the record. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I know. So I, I don't want to keep you terribly longer. I know you got a busy day, um, but I kind of wanted to go over the uh, the morning, afternoon, evening EP. Uh, I guess. Did you put it together as a full length as well or is it just the EPs or? Um, we have released it as not necessarily as a full length, but we have released like all the EPs together in one like one. I got you. Okay. Um, and if you go to Spotify, I think you kind of listen to them. At, you can listen to them as Gen a full uh, album. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just let's touch on on those EPs real quick and uh, and the last self titled as as well, and then we can get on to demons. Yeah. So, you know, after Singularity and after Robin Mark left. You know, we had to figure out what we wanted to do and how we wanted to do it. We also got word that, you know, we were like on on the uh, Motion City Name Berlin tour. We were in Atlanta, and we were on our bus. And this, I just say that because it kind of frames the 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 embarrassment of the story. Um, we were on our bus, and our CPA, our accountant, comes on the bus. He was based in Atlanta, and he says, "Well, guys." Um, you're $80,000 in debt. And this is a shock to us. Um, and so just being told that you're in debt and you're just on this bus that's costing, you know, thousands of dollars a day. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, crap, you know. So you feel foolish, you feel irresponsible, and you yep. feel like a failure. Um, so after that tour, we kind of had to figure out what to do. So, if I can pat ourselves on the back, if I can pat ourselves on the back for anything, if that makes sense, um, is that we got back in the van um, after that tour, and we were able to pay off all that debt just by touring on a, on a van. It's incredible. Yeah, I think some of those dates were worth, worth, worth Reliant K. Um, and we kind of forged a relationship with those guys at the time because they were on capital as well when we were. Um, and somehow we got out of debt. And then from there, we kind of had, we wanted to take a different approach to doing a record. Um, and that's the one we released. It was, we didn't have a record label. It was completely, um, we did it by ourselves. We recorded it by ourselves and we financed it by ourselves. Mm. Um, and we just decided to do one song a month. Um, and we decided to bring, excuse me, um, all of the proceeds from the songs were going to go to different charities. Um, and that's what we did. And we did it to the point of like, I remember making a particular kind of, I wanted it to be something where it's not like, oh, okay, we're going to give, you know, 
disbursed percentage of what we make to whatever. I want to be like, look, let's just do, let's just give everything mm. to um, there are certain charities we did. Um, was it like I can't remember the charities at this point. Uh, I we did one about education, homes, um, and something else. Now I'm ashamed. I can't remember. What's that humanity houses for humanity? House, habitat for humanity? Habitat for humanity. Yeah, we did habitat yeah. for humanity. Um, donors choose, and uh, I, I can't remember the other one. But um, we decided to give all this money away. Um, and so that was untenable, obviously, because we weren't bringing, we weren't keeping the yeah. money. We, we didn't have any operating um, budget. But that was our whole, or that was our whole mo. Like we started giving all our money away um, based on these songs to these various charities. So on the tours we did, um, those are always also really grueling because we were in a bus still. I'm sorry, we were in a van, um, and we also decided to work with local charities at each of the tour stops. Right. So that meant that, you know, we play a show and then if the show, if we play Jacksonville and then the next show is in Atlanta, you know, typically you would be like, okay, well, we can leave Jacksonville in the morning and be in Atlanta by three o'clock um, and load in and do like a normal show day. But doing it this way, we had to take into consideration like spending the afternoon with a local charity then going to the venue and then do all that stuff mm. so we we're doing a lot of uh charity work um in each local city that we were visiting and inviting fans to come vote with us um so we were doing a lot of work um at that time i don't think we had a manager we were you know in terms of the diy ethic and i mean everything was being done uh by ourselves by us um but it was really tiring and so that's like that. And so we decided to do this kind of one song a month thing. And that's that whole campaign was mm. um, based around um, raising money for other charities um, and doing things a little like, you know, uh, in a different way. You know, I think now it's kind of funny because you see a lot of artists doing this kind of I think it's more common now because there really are no rules in terms of streaming and kind of upended everything. But that's why. We just kind of had to had to find another reason to start doing to continue uh, doing May, and I think that's we found our purpose in kind of orienting ourselves outward, um, and kind of allowing ourselves to kind of engage more um, and, and on that side of things with charity and, and using music in that sense. So it wasn't the best business decision, um, but I think it gave us a purpose that really kind of sustained us for a while. Um, and also recording was really fun because we were doing anything by ourselves. We didn't really, you know, we went far the opposite direction of this kind of lowest common denominator vibe. We kind of became um, more insular in our in our creative approaches and just kind of wanted to make things weird and long and, you know, have more liberty that way. And so that was a lot of fun. Um, and that ended up being those three EPs. Um, and even Rob came back for a bit to do some of the stuff like, and that's when did the 2015, um, we did the Everglow tour on the, uh, and that was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, those are the, those are those EPs, um, but like between like 2000 and then 2009, 2010, uh, mm -hmm. era. Yeah. Do you look fondly on those 
songs or is it something that you just obviously you connected with them in in the giving aspect and, and giving of yourself so i mean obviously that's something that meant something to you so is that something that you look back and you're like this is just as good as the everglow or this is just as good as you know singularity in a way i mean i don't i think some songs are great i don't think as a collective i i, I think of them in the same that same kind of way as everglow um you no, know, because a lot of the, the different reasons why, like we recorded them at different times, so that there's no like con- sonic consistencies not there. It's like little nitpicky things like that for me. But um, some songs from those sessions, like Bloom, are still kind of fan favorites and favorites of ours. We play all the time. Um, I just need you to know um, is another great one. I think my favorite um, of the EPs is Evening. Um, but you know, songs like Over and Over on the Afternoon EP, which is that was really fun. I mean, the songs just kind of, we went anywhere we wanted to go with these yeah. songs. Um, and so in that sense, I think it's special. Uh, Night and Day, cool track. Um, Melody Memory. Yeah, I, you know, there's definitely a lot of cool songs um, on those records. Song like Fight Song, which is so weird. Um, but we played it live for a little while. Uh, and so in that sense, I, I think Follow Me on those songs as well. Um, but because they're so spaced out, you know, I never think of them as a as a collective of song. I just think about the songs individually. Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, let's also touch on the full length real quick, uh, and then we'll get to demons. But um, is it, so, were you guys back on, back on tooth and nail at that point, or is that something where, um, yeah, something? That yeah, happened. it was uh, tooth and nail. We ended up um, just getting in touch with them again, and they were willing to work with us. And again, it wasn't like a long, we just, I think it was just for the record, um, that one record. And that was, you know, that's like a record I, I will say I'm like, it's like I'm familiar with it. Um, you know, by this time, so this is, I think that record was released in 2018, maybe? 18, 17, yeah. something like that. Um, and by that time, Dave had been moved to Nashville, you know, kind of, he has a studio out in Nashville, Schematic Studios, he owns it. Um, Jacob was in Brooklyn by this point, and I was the only one left in Virginia Beach. Um, and, you know, I just remember the writing session of the songs being difficult because I was in school and working, um, and I had a family by now. I have a, a daughter, you know, and so the writing of those songs was a lot more fragmented in one sense because... Another thing about being in May, and I think I mentioned this on the Everywhere blog, especially as a guitar player, is that Dave can do everything he needs to do. Right? He doesn't need a guitar player, a bass player, a piano player, a drummer. He can do all those things. And he had his own studio in Nashville. Um, so we were writing as a band, but with this kind of added dimension where Dave is doing so much just because he's in Nashville. And like that's what he does, right? Like if you if you think about me as a songwriter, like, it's not something I will go to the studio to do if I don't have an idea, yeah. right? Dave is just someone that is, he is someone who writes songs. He is someone who creates in the studio. He, that's just what he does. He has a way of mentally arranging things. And, you know, so in this sense, this record, uh, Multisensory has had an experience. Um, it's just in my brain, it's really fragmented. Um, and Jacob was in a really tough spot doing this record. Uh, the making of this record, we were all kind of stressed in our own way, but 
we were having a great time together, you know, recording the stuff and we had a lot of liberties and kind of, we, you know, because we had Dave's studio, um, you know, there's just a lot of weird dimensions to this recording that make us so like, you know, if you ask me to play, I don't know, um, seven words, uh, that's what the song's called again. So like, you know, I, I've never played, I didn't play on that song. You know, I was in Virginia. I was, yeah. You know, and so I couldn't play that song. You know, Dave would have to teach me the song and, um, and I don't mind that, you know, but my connection to the record is, is kind of mediated through oh, a yeah, disconnection, yeah. you know, yeah. through a, this kind of weird, like, okay, let's go to Nashville for three days or four days, do some stuff, then go home and then like come back at the end of the month and do it again. Like, so there was no continuity for me. Um, and I like, and I have a hard time working that way. Um, and I would say like, I have a harder time working that way in particular because of May, because my creative orientation and dynamic with Dave is never, is never static. It's never something I can predict. Yeah. Um, so for me, it's like a relearning experience every time we do something creatively, because I don't know what level Dave's working on. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't want to make him sound like this intimidating guru. He's just like, he's just how his brain works. He just, you know, he just has this way of thinking. I don't think that way. Yeah. We work well together. Um, but you know, Dave can just do something like, you know, if I record like a guitar line and it's just isolated from anything he has in his brain at the time, it's not like it was something we work together. He just, Oh, Dave, Zach, send me this guitar line. So I sent it to him. And he can kind of rework that, put it into a different key, change a note, and make it work with something else that he has that he has from like three months ago. Oh, Just gotcha. to like, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think those kind of creative processes, these kind of distinctions, made that record um, a little more difficult, not not unfun just difficult for me, you know, and also, and this is just like stupid stuff about writing records with other people. Like those guys are night owls. Like I am done by like nine o'clock and on nights, right? Yeah. So I'm just like, oh, okay, well, you know, you guys keep working, you know, they'll on the work till 3 a.m., you know, just like doing keyboard stuff. And so like, it's just like, you know, and by this time we're in our late thirties and early forties, late thirties, I guess at this point, and our, our egos are different. Like I'm not necessarily wrapped up in having to be present in this way, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm like, hey, well, you guys do what you want to do. Like I'm, I'm tired after you work, you know? Yeah. All these factors come into making a record um, at that point. Um, and so that's like the pro, that's what built kind of um, this record. And, you know, songs like, uh, is it, um, and this is another thing. I'm going to open my phone because I want to look at the song. <laughs> um, I'm, not, I'm not texting anyone. I, I totally it. get it. I get I it. I like, um, let's see. My I favorite song on this record. Sing, track two. I like a whole lot. Um, yeah. No Promises uh, is a cool song. Um, Five Light Years. I mean, the record is really good. Uh, Racial Autonomy. And I don't mind saying it's really good because my connection to the record, again, it's like I'm trying to like, oh, yeah, I think it's really great. Like what was able to come out of us in that, in that kind of um, yeah. process and situation was, you know, pretty cool. Absolutely. And I saw you guys did, um, um, after the fact, you guys just did those uh, Juliana Theory shows. How did that go? Is, was that kind of, uh, did you play those song, the newer record on that? Or was it just, oh, it was Everglow, right? Yeah, we played Everglow okay. on that one. We did some shows where we have played some multi-sensory songs. Um, like we played Sing, 
Um, we played uh, Five Light Years. Um, let me see. Our Love is a Painted Picture. Those songs we would play, and we played those live. Uh, Drill Line of Theory was, yeah, we would just do the Everglow. Um, and that was cool because, I, you know, they were doing Emotion is Dead, which I think is a, an Great amazing record. record. Yeah. Um, but those shows were kind of postponed and made weird by all the COVID stuff. So by the time the shows actually happened, who knows what they could have been. I mean, they're all still great. Uh, we were just kind of weekend shows. So we'd fly out to the shows and fly back and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So it wasn't like a tour in the traditional sense. Um, we spread those dates out over like a year. Um, but it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, and it's cool because you just go there and fly out. You don't have the the exhaustion that normally comes with, yeah. with boring. So, um, but yeah, we had a good time on the shows. That's awesome. Um, I really am enjoying this, by the way. This is really, really insightful. Yeah, I'm fine. I mean, I don't mind. Okay. Much. Yeah. So I, yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to go to demons next. So, um, not to cut may off, but I just, yeah, that's yeah. It, we, we talked about may. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, demons, um, yeah, let's. Uh, how did that start? How did uh, I know it's a completely a departure from May, um, you know? And so, kind of, let's go over Demons and kind of how that and you know your uh, link with Spartan Records and John, and obviously you've got a past with him. So, yeah. Uh, so Demons kind of emerged from two different impulses in my brain. One was, I should say, impulses and desires. One was I was always kind of curious if i could do my own stuff um with may it was you know i just do guitar stuff and you know the the pro the songs worked out or manifested from a collective kind of process but also one that kind of was in and uh headed up by dave and i didn't know if i could do it and i just had this nagging kind of annoyance in my brain it's like can you do it and i was kind of would write stuff that would never be something i'd show to may but like oh man that would be cool so I just wanted to see if I could do it. Um, and then I, and that's, I think that's kind of, you know, at the time, um, I have my own kind of orientations about, and my kind of um, ways of engaging in the world, understanding the world that do, that are separate from how May's kind of collective creative process reflects their own view of the world, right? By that I mean politics, by that I mean anger, by that I mean um, my own kind of hangups that, um, you know, I harbored and developed and nurtured in my own time. It's really going to school and learning more. And um, and also I have this punk rock kind of root, right, this kind of connection. And I was just really, it was a reactionary thing. I wanted to do something like, I, I say like dumb, by that I mean very, very simple, very, very bullheaded. Um, not eloquent, not nuanced. I wanted to do something kind of bombastic um, and, you know, just punk rock. And so that was not going to happen with May. And I didn't want it to happen with May. I wasn't trying to bring, you know, like those kind of, that kind of content to May. It would have just been weird. Um, and I was, we weren't touring as much. Um, and I just had, I just wanted to see if I could get this thing off the ground. And that's where the impulse came from. And also, it was, it was reactionary in the sense that I wanted to make something very, very simple, very, very one-dimensional. Um, and I was listening to heavier stuff at the time again, um, and so I just wanted to see if I could do it. And that was the first EP, that first Demons EP, I want to say it was like 2015, it was a while ago now. Wow. Um, and yeah, I, I was able to kind of, you know, John had started, or John Frazier had started Spartan at the time, and, you know, and that, and that was a 
big thing for him. Not a big thing for him, I should say. A big, a big favor to me. Totally. Um, just because he didn't know what it was going to sound like. I just asked him if he would put it out, and he said yes. So he didn't have to do that. Um, and we we did three records with Spartan. The, the next one we're doing is not going to be on Spartan, but is that going to be on a label at all, or it's going to be on a label called Knife Hits, and they're based out of Philadelphia. They're kind of more of a noise noise rock label. Okay. Um, but yeah, so I just wanted to do it, and that's how I did it. I just started writing songs, and so the first record, the first EP, was pretty much just me playing guitar. My buddy John played bass, um, and Drew. I played drums. Drew was someone I met through Mark Padgett, who was still engineering at the time, and he had worked with Drew's band. And Drew's just a great drummer. I said, hey, who can I... And I didn't want to work with Mark because I didn't want anyone from May associated with the project at all. Um, and not out of bitterness, just because I didn't... You know, I know how Mark works, and I know what I need, and my level of confidence would not be able to... would not be able to kind of withstand Mark's kind of attention to detail. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to do something entirely different. So John engineered it, the guy who played bass, and then Mark introduced me to Drew, and Drew was fortunately available to play drums. Um, and that's and so we just did that stuff together. And even Ra was in, involved a little bit with the first uh, EP. He played some piano in certain parts. Um, and then from there, you know, I don't know, you know how it is. Like I just like oh I don't want to do much, but like we start playing shows, and. Um, and then I asked my friend Chris um, to play guitar, and he's, you know, still in the band. So we have this like four piece now. And from there, we just kept playing, and we didn't tour at all. We played regionally around, but um, we played fest in Gainesville. Yeah. And obviously, that was uh, one when I saw you. We were on our way to play fest that year, um, and it just kind of worked out. And you know, we would finance the records ourselves, and because John's an engineer, we kind of have that privilege. Uh, it wasn't as, as expensive. And so with John Frazier and Spartan, you know, we would just say, hey, here's the record. And like, you know, he would put some work into it on his own, like a design and things like that. And and so, you know, we'll always be grateful to John Frazier in that sense, um, because he was able to he helped us out. Um, and, you know, we didn't ask much from him and he never really asked much from us as long as we had, you know, he'd use his PR guy to put, pitch the record for reviews and stuff like that. Yeah um and you know do like little youtube videos and things and you know make it look pro uh but yeah and so and i've just been wanting to get heavier and heavier musically um and that's what demons allows me to do um and so in a lot of ways like i like the kind of um juxtaposition between may and demon because philosophically and creatively they're so distinct mm -hmm. um and that, you know, my love of pop music and my love of craft, or I should say my appreciation of craft and songwriting is kind of something that I can really kind of explore with May. With May, there's less kind of creative limitations um, because we can do whatever we want sonically. There's really no kind of limitations on that sense for us anymore. But with Demons, it's not a limitation, so to speak, but just like we have a way of doing certain things and we want to do it that way. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, Demons is a heavier project. And, you know, I think leisurely in my own personal identity, I, you know, that's some I root myself more in that world musically, um, just because that's where I initially came up from. And so now I'm just kind of I find space in that world again in Norfolk in my own kind of region. Um, and I've made, you know, connections in that world again. 
uh, so it's both bands are really important to me, but you know, Demons has this kind of, um, uh, you know, it's just a nice uh, outlet. Outlet, great, great word. <laughs> and for me, especially now, because everything is is so awful, um, and I'm allowed to kind of be more uh, blunt with my um, resentments and my orientations and, and feelings, um, and expressive in that sense. And by expressive, I mean less poetic, more just uh, more obnoxious, yeah, um, and that kind of thing. So yeah, and you know we're, you know we have this record coming out. We recorded uh, last year in Rhode Island. And so we're going to, it'll probably come out in a few months, maybe September, who knows. Um, but yeah, and so, you know, it's just something we can still do. And, you know, it's a lot of fun. That's awesome. What's your favorite um, thing that you've done with Demons? Like, what's your favorite song or record? Um, my favorite record is Privation. That's the one that came, and that's the last full length. Yeah, the last one. Yeah. Um, favorite song? No, I feel like there's a song called um, Husk that we have, and it's not out yet. Um, that's my favorite one right now. The favorite one that's released, I think, is probably um, Ravage. That's on Privation. Or uh, it's also one we released a, like a cassette EP on Knife Hits um, in September of last year. Um, and there's a song called um, Inauguration Day on that one. Very cool. So, yeah, those are my favorite ones. And they're all available in Bandcamp and all that stuff. So Very cool. Yeah. Sweet. So I guess we'll wrap this up. Um, uh, so anything with going on with May coming up at all or any any shows, tours, anything with Demons, any of that stuff? Well, Demons has a show in Norfolk on February 3rd, and we have a show in Philadelphia on March 18th. Um, May is trying to get ourselves oriented to, to write more. It's just really – um, it's a slow process, uh, but you know both bands have stuff on the horizon. I think I hope May can kind of start kind of shaping things pretty soon. You know, I'd like to go to Nashville and start actually writing and recording stuff. I know Dave's a lot of stuff ready to record. So um, yeah, I mean May definitely has some things coming on the horizon. Um, and Demons with the with the record, you know, both bands have something coming out this yeah. Uh, I want to say this year, um, knock on wood, but yeah. So both, uh, both outlets are, uh, have, have stuff on the burner, so to speak. That's awesome. Yeah. Dude, thank you so much for your time. It's so good to connect, reconnect. Um, you really I, cool. I think you're an amazing dude, super talented. So I appreciate you, uh, asking me to be on your podcast. Um, I'm happy to do it, and I thank you for thinking of me. Uh, of course, you know, bro. And, and asking me some questions. Uh, so, yeah, um, I extend these same uh, gracious compliments to your way. Thank you so much. Dude, thank you so much. Well, next time you come down my way, shoot me a text, and let's get together. Yeah, in fact, in I was in your area, and I last time I went there for work, and I I don't know why I didn't catch up with you, but I went to Mr. Uh, Mr. Shawarma. Oh, no, 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 I love that place. That's so good. <laughs> I know. Um, awesome. Yeah. Uh, no, I understand, man. Like, uh, it's everything's tougher these days. And, uh, you know, so when I, if I'm ever down that way and I have a, a few hours, um, you know, because we go through whenever my wife and I go go to Florida because my parents are still in Orlando, we just drive straight through Jacksonville. We never Dude, take, text me next time we get a beer or something. I know, right? Um, very cool. Uh, thank you so much, Jamie. Yeah, man. We'll talk soon. Indeed. All right, buddy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Hey, it's Jeremy. Thanks so much for tuning in to this latest episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. It's really cool. Um, A lot of meat in there, if you will. Um, So thanks so much to Zach for his time. And I really appreciate appreciate him coming on the podcast. Um, Stay tuned for the upcoming guests. Got some really cool uh, people. And I really hope you uh, enjoy what you hear. Thanks, guys. I want to give a shout out to my friends, the Bryans. Thanks to Brian Trummel for the Rumors Are True podcast artwork. And Brian Jaron for music and post-production. 